This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Value Inspiration Podcast. My name is Ton Dobber, and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration. The purpose of my company is to help business software companies rethink what can be to become remarkable again. The goal that I have with this podcast is to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. So my strong belief is that we can think big, and therefore we should. And doing so will help to create a better world for all of us. This podcast is all about that. The guest on my podcast this week is Ephraim Hoffman, CEO of Running Alpha. My passion has always been about understanding the physics that underlies very unusual events. I did a thesis, which was basically on applying vision techniques in three-dimensional radar in order to use AI in a more constructive way where humans don't make assumptions about what's actually happening in the surroundings. I patented that technology, and there was a couple of people, one from uh, the University of Manitoba, some of the professors there that noticed that some of the applications, that AI approach that was used uh, for atmospheric tornado prediction could be applied to the financial markets and understanding you know, extreme behavior and what causes it to take shape during manias and panic. I'm most proud of actually being able to make predictions in very narrow windows and persistent windows for when market crashes are likely to take place so that I can actually protect investors' portfolios during those events. This is Ephraim. He's the CEO, founding architect, and thought leader of Running Alpha, an independent Canadian innovation think tank headquartered in Toronto. As stated on his website, he's employing patented and proprietary insights at the intersection of physics and finance to exploit market uncertainty for competitive advantage. He's a thought leader in smart data analysis architecture and developer of quantum behavioral trade machines. Ephraim has 145 citations and multiple infotech patents referenced in patents granted to Fortune 500 companies and research think tanks. His vision is rethinking the way we can collaborate with nature in order to better exploit uncertainty. And with that in mind, he's developing solutions that help investors build intelligent portfolios and see investment opportunities before they arrive and get noticed. From there, he helps them to navigate around value traps to ensure they maximize the value of that portfolio. And this inspired me. Hence, I invited Ephraim to my podcast. We explore the challenges and risks of today's financial market and how technology can help investors get early access to opportunities that were previously only discoverable by the Wall Street influencers. By listening to this interview, you will learn three things. Firstly, why the best decisions can only be made when bias and sentiment are taken out of the equation. This is a clear area for technology to play a significant role. Secondly, 
that the solutions we create will gain in value exponentially when they not only predict a certain high-risk event accurately, but also provide the ingredients to prevent it altogether. And thirdly, how to find new sources for innovation by searching for use cases that are driven by extreme uncertainty. Tackling uncertainty can turn into clear competitive advantage. So, to get the podcast started, Ephraim, thank you for being on my podcast and make the time available today, your busy schedule. But before we start, can you give the audience a little bit of a background in terms of what are you passionate about and how do you get into the game that you're currently playing in? Well, my passion has always been about understanding the physics that underlies very unusual events. And even back as young as when I was like six or seven years old, I would always go on car trips and I would demand that my father would drive on a day where there was like a severe thunderstorm or a tornado so that we could actually get a view of nature's most spectacular forces. That led to me taking a combination of meteorology and computer engineering in university to understand the dynamics of very complex systems. And in the process of doing that, I did a thesis, which was basically on applying vision techniques in three-dimensional radar in order to use AI in a more constructive way where humans don't make assumptions about what's actually happening in the surroundings, but you let the AI speak for itself through the data. And in the process of doing that, I was able to develop an algorithm that was able to classify severe storm events actually faster on a 33 megahertz computer than a Cray mainframe could just because of the type of algorithm that was applied. So it shows that brute force doesn't always work no matter how good your computer systems are. It really requires some ingenuity in terms of how you look at the data. Because one of the most important things I learned in AI is that uh, you put garbage in, you get garbage out. And you sure. can have the most sophisticated AI models, but if you don't understand the underlying physics of the subject that you're applying it to, it's not going to produce results. A, a mediocre human could do better than a computer yeah. in that situation. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's also fascinating to see how, uh, how people start their job. So how did you come about starting running Alpha? Well, what happened was after my thesis, when... I got a lot of uh, interest because like, I, I patented that technology and there was a couple uh, people, one from uh, the University of Manitoba, some of the professors there that noticed that some of the applications, that AI approach that was used uh, for atmospheric tornado prediction could be applied to the financial markets and understanding you know, extreme behavior and what causes it to take shape during manias and panics. And then when I, I went to this, uh, to this Chicago uh, trade show in the futures markets, and there happened to be a few people there that I got introduced indirectly to one of the largest traders in the futures trading pit in Chicago. And that fellow, you know, took me in, wanted me to apply these methods to help him, you know, do uh, portfolio trading in the futures markets and potentially the stock markets. Yeah. And in the process of doing that, I got mentored in the, the, you know, the underlyings of how the mechanics of the markets work. And then I took that and over a course of years interacting with 
some very high level people in the industry to build those insights into the AI model. And in the process, there was a lot of other mathematics that was required that go far beyond AI, including you know, chaos theory and, and some high level mathematics in order to actually extract the information that's most relevant. And in the process, I actually got contacted through LinkedIn through a number of financial analysts that were interested in, like that were involved in the value investment space that were actually interested in solving a real world problem. And one of those problems is that, you know, there may be a lot of value in terms of companies that trade on on the markets, but at the end of the day, it's the human and the machine that decide when to put the trades on that will actually you know, drive the realization of that value. And you could, you could have, you know, all the value you want, but if there's 30,000 different opportunities around the world to choose from, there may not be eyeballs there focusing on the opportunity that you intend to be investing on. So Running Alpha decided to help value managers who aren't looking at the aspect of the underlying physics of human behavior and perceptions of machines and decision makers in order to actually understand precisely when a value investment will turn into a growth opportunity. And that's where running out the started. And right now, one of the main areas that we're really, really excited with in running alpha is the idea of applying this technology to activist investing so that you're not only involved in applying the technology to try to predict where the financial markets are going to be going, but you're actually able to analyze the market in such detail that you could actually modify its long-term outcome. Because as we know in chaos theory, there are certain situations that emerge where these very small windows in time could actually make large-term differences in the future state of events far out into the future. And if you could identify those windows, and actually do real things to a company that could actually ignite their potential during those windows, the marketplace will respond much more strongly than if you were to apply those methodologies outside the window. So it's kind of like, it would definitely be a, a big help to the human uh, resource department as well. <laughs> I can imagine. So what is the opportunity if you get this right? It seems like a massive, massive thing you're working on. Yeah, well, I mean, currently, like, to give you the current state of events of, like, how people, like, in this field look at this kind of space, there's only about three or four different ways you could actually slice a prediction of what's likely to happen in the markets and help value managers or growth managers. And one, which a lot of people use, which a a lot of people who fundamentally analyze companies don't like is is technical analysis. To me, it has its merits, but it definitely has its drawbacks. I mean, one of the key tenets of technical analysis is analyzing price and volume behavior of traders. It could either be machines or humans. And the idea is that volume begets price. And if you have an idea of where the big buyers are coming in, you can get an indication of where you should invest. Part of the problem with that is you end up getting in a bit late because by the time a lot of volume comes into the market, they've likely already moved price towards an equilibrium level where it's going to be harder to make money 
without taking undue risks. The second problem is that uh, you'll have a situation where the market could be gained by predators, as it has many times in the past. For yeah. example, in 2010, when we had the flash crash, uh, we had situations where these uh, computer algos purposely you know, put artificial orders in to make it look as if activity was happening so that if you were a technical analysis studying price and volume patterns, you would be duped into like a trend that you thought would persist that yep. really was fake. And then the market kind of created noise for you. The second area is the fundamental analysis. We actually study the, the underlyings of the company and the balance sheet. Yep. And all that is great, but it's all based on the assumption that what is the price multiple that you give to a company? Because yep. when times are great, the price multiples expand, and when times are bad, they contract. So you may have all the mathematics right on your fundamental you know, evaluation of a company, but you still have to make a prediction of how price multiples will change. And yep. that's a function of the market move, which all comes back to what running out is all about. It's about studying the jet stream of human and machine perceptions and emotions that are actually creating that market move over time. But the mathematics that are currently used in a lot of the, even the high-end algos today, don't bridge together some of the most sophisticated areas on the cutting edge of mathematics and finance. And one of the areas I really put a huge focus on, and you could see it on, you know, mentioned all over my LinkedIn uh, blog and my website, is aspects of quantum computing, aspects of understanding the mathematics of how networks work, so you could tell when there's going to be feedback behavior among different decision makers, and also an old type of calculus, which is now emerging, but few people are actually using it. And it's very useful in the pre-processing of signal information that goes into artificial intelligence systems. And that's called fractional calculus. We're all familiar with calculus. The idea of calculus and is that, uh, okay, you're gonna analyze the behavior of a curve that could be the acceleration or the velocity of, let's say, price that an analyst may want to um, identify to predict a trend. But we all know that sometimes you get the situations where it's not a smooth curve. You could get a kind of a discontinuity or big jump. And it's those big jumps that cause those tail risk events, black swan events, where people could actually either lose a lot of money or get hurt in real life. So the idea here is to be able to apply mathematics and AI to remove the unpredictability of these kind of jump events that can't be handled with the traditional mathematics. And fractional calculus, unlike the original type of calculus, basically fractional calculus, really they started working on it uh, back way back hundreds of years ago, but they couldn't find an application that makes sense. Because in fractional calculus, you have to take the half derivative of something. And if you take a derivative of a velocity, you know, you're going to get acceleration. But what's the half derivative of something? You'd have to take the half derivative twice to get the derivative. So they couldn't understand what that meant for the longest time. At Running Alpha, we've, for the past, like over a decade, been applying aspects of that technique. And what it really means, the half derivative, instead of looking at how a path of something instantaneously changes from point A to point B, we're saying that the information 
that depicts whether point A to point B is going to change isn't contained within a local neighborhood, but it's actually affected by the sum nonlinear behavior of many non-local neighborhoods. So for example, it could be decision makers that are looking at information from a very long-term time frame, multi-generational, or it could be you know, these hyper-day traders that are looking at information on a sub-millisecond basis or, or even yeah. shorter. And no one person is right. It, it, you can't, like, you know, a lot of people in the marketplace will try to go to a specific, you know, call up a, an expert and say, you know, based on your history of being, uh, you know, correct, I'm going to trust your judgment. What do you see happening right now? And it doesn't work like that because no matter how good somebody is, there's always somebody on the other side that's just as good as you. Yeah. And market, the marketplace is really the interaction of all these perceptions. And all these people want to make money. So when they have a perception and humans are rational to the extent that independently they will act on those perceptions, that information goes into the order book, which ultimately gets matched and produces a price. So if you're just analyzing the price, you're just looking at an output. But if you're actually studying the underlying physics of all the the multi-particles being the humans and the machines that are perceiving information on different time horizons, and based on their limitations of whatever mathematics they're using, you could actually gain information, not from the person that knows the most, but from the person that knows the least. Because the one that knows the least is actually interacting with the ones that know the best. And if you could actually sum that nonlinear behavior up, make sense out of it, this artificial intelligence that we apply actually will produce an output that's far different than any of the decision makers that independently went into producing that output. So we're really about looking at the inner product of human behavior instead of the outer product of price. Well, stories. <laughs> so how does this change the day-to-day life of a trader? I mean, I, I assume it's, you sell this to, to individual traders. I mean, what is the I, impact I, on, on them? To basically financial institutions, boutique hedge funds and portfolio managers that are trying to compete with the yeah. larger banks that have huge infrastructure ability, UAI, so they'll outsource this information. A lot of the, the people that are interested in this, and it's like anyone else, everyone wants to be the best at what they're doing, and they're used to doing things a certain way. So if you yeah. force feed them with a new model or a new framework, they're not going to follow it no matter how good it is. So you need to have something that acts as a human-machine combo, as you've put it in the past, where a person could actually augment their own intelligence or the intelligence of their machines that they built without taking apart what they've built. So for example, a perfect example would be a value manager, let's say, that's applying a value model. There's many different value models, so, but this would apply to all managers. Let's say that they've analyzed that there's 10 stocks that people should buy right now to get a diversified portfolio based on company fundamentals and the valuation. Now, the idea is out of those 10 companies, most of the time, maybe two or three out of those 10 will actually produce positive alpha on a consistent basis in in the near to intermediate term. And most hedge fund managers are interested in retaining clients and they need to actually on a quarterly basis produce positive alpha and outperformance. 
And to do that, it's not good enough to say, hey, you know what? I've got a three to five year horizon. And if you buy this value investment, you're going to make money. But in the meantime, you're down 30 or 50 percent, like a lot of value managers. Uh -huh. do. That, that becomes a big issue. So what these value managers that are looking at this product, they're interested in saying, hey, how could I use this intelligence as an overlay on the list of securities that I think are interesting? And if you could tell me the five or six where I should allocate the most capital to and stay away from the losers and wait until those become more productive, then I could improve the performance and reduce the drawdown, which yeah. ultimately allows you to retain clients or even clients putting in more capital. Yeah. So do I get it right that, you, that I mean, what, what you try to get out of the equation is, is all the bumps, so to say. You want to get, you know, the prediction of how a, well, how a particular portfolio is going to perform is going to be very predictable, let's put it that way. Yeah, but here's the, here's the interesting thing. You can't actually, look, there's too many factors that go into the market besides human perceptions and psychology. That's uh -huh. one factor that affects the market. But True. there are so many other factors that you won't be able to factor in. So it's almost futile to yeah. try to predict those outward events. And I'm not a, like, I don't believe that anyone can because you'd have insider information to everything. And first of all, you can't have that information. And if you had it, you can't act on it. So how could you actually use uncertainty in the markets, not as a bad thing, but as a competitive advantage. Because I yeah. keep on hearing people on the TV always saying, you know, there's so much uncertainty. We're not going to make any decisions. We're just going to wait until all the uncertainty goes away. I mean, we all know that it never all goes away. We're living in a time where it's definitely heightened. So maybe what the people really mean is, let's just wait until it goes back to somewhat normal levels. Yeah. But the problem is, by the time you wait for it to actually you know, have a mean reversion to the normal, which is always a dynamic thing anyways, which involves another prediction that you can't actually get right, you end up losing out on opportunities. And that's a big issue because managers and, and fund managers and investors get paid for making decisions. True. And if you're not making decisions, you don't get paid. Yep. So, or you don't make money either. So how could you turn something that's really negative you know, to the marketplace as uncertainty, which is even worse than risk. A risk, at least you could, uh, you know, you could mitigate. You could adjust for by, like, uh, you know, buying a derivative or protecting yourself, or at least knowing in your head what your your absolute limits are. Uncertainty, it's an open-ended kind of thing. Yeah. So, at running alpha, these this crowd physics framework, what it actually does is it takes information that's coming into the marketplace. So, let's say really, really bad news that would normally cause a market to go down, yeah. it, what it does is it attenuates or lessens the degree to which decision makers will be perceiving a negative sentiment on that incoming negative news. And it amplifies the positive news. So the asymmetry between the positive and the negative produces a net alpha. Yeah. And if you could overlay that alpha, with looking at companies that have a strong spider web or ecosystem amongst themselves for which each of those companies are have a reflexivity or feedback effect that actually enhances that amplification and attenuates the negative, 
you could produce a portfolio that is deliberately diversified instead of just you know saying oh i'm just going to go into buy one stock in healthcare and one yeah, stock in, yeah. in another area because it's very possible that you may have a lot of stocks in many different areas and it seems diversified but the underlying physics and the sentiment perception jet stream of the people that are interacting to produce the output that you see in each of those sectors they may actually be the same and you end up getting a situation where you get crowd events mass herding and if an outsized event comes into the market that's negative traders take the other side of the trade and you could get washed out on all your securities and what you thought was diversified becomes really a single investment yeah, so that's, that's the big issue that we try to deal with well a lot of money involved in there. <laughs> yeah, but I would have to say the biggest thing right now that I'm probably the most passionate about is that, and I'm probably the biggest problem, period, in investing, is the gap between individual investor performance and reported fund manager performance. Because okay. you'll always hear managers say, well, if you stayed with this product or you were invested in the S&P over this long period of time, you would have made this amount of money. But the reality is there's two things that get in the way of allowing people to make money, even if the fund manager had a successful strategy. One, the obvious is volatility, because if yeah. there's too much volatility that the manager has, the investor themselves may not have the stomach to stay with the manager, even though the manager may have the stomach to stay with the strategy. I mean, that's number one. You don't want a manager that fails out because you put on too much volatility, but you can't saw an individual investor from leaving the fund. I mean, you could put penalties on it, but they'll still leave if it's painful enough. Yeah. And if you look at it historically, a lot of investors have lost a lot of money because of leaving too early and then not getting in you know, on time. They usually get in right at the top because again, like I say, they're waiting for confirmation in price as opposed to understanding the physics that produces it. But the bigger problem than volatility is actually them not understanding the uncertainty of the marketplace. So you may have a portfolio that hardly goes down, but you hear on the news every day. You could be inundated every day with information saying that the world's falling apart. Yeah. And meanwhile, the manager may be up 10% and the investor leaves. And, he, and they never get to see that long-run growth return because yeah. you always go through those cycles in the marketplace where there's these big macro events that scare people out of the market. So it's really uncertainty that is the biggest danger you know, to closing the gap between individual investor performance and the actual reported performance. So we wanted to come up with a solution that could actually help managers solve that aspect and we did because the solution is basically if you tell an investor that you have to wait one quarter before you actually understand what the performance is during the quarter they're going to be nervous but if you could actually update them on a daily basis or in real time based on what the physics of the model is saying so if the physics of the framework is saying that hey this portfolio should be amplifying outcomes on positive information and, and reducing the effect of negative information, they could watch that each and every day in their portfolio. And when they hear that bad news came into the market, they could go check their portfolio and see whether those stocks that were selected in the portfolio are actually amplifying 
positive results compared to every other alternative. And they could do the same on the negative. And if it's constantly doing the right thing, then the investor knows that you're producing alpha for the right reasons, as opposed to just being, you know, a genius or a dumb genius and just being right because you've gone along with the trend. Pretty lucky. Yeah. (laughs) Pretty interesting. I mean, this is, I don't know a lot about this, this subject. I haven't been investing myself in my life, or at least not, not enough to be an expert on this topic. But I can understand the, the dynamics here and, and what's at stake. So what is, the most, what is the area where you're most proud of? I mean, what, what results have you seen where you said, wow, you know, this is really working? I'm most proud of actually being able to make predictions in very narrow windows and persistent windows for when market crashes are likely to take place so that I could actually protect investors' portfolios during those events. And I recently bought one of those pieces of information. I actually published it on LinkedIn a while back regarding the Canadian stock market. When the market was near the top, we actually indicated that this uh, sentiment intelligence engine was indicating a meltdown. And what gets me really going here is being able to see those predictions unfold. Not just like, okay, at the end of the day, check mark, we were right on this one, but were we right for the right reasons? And then actually just seeing the visualization of that information and seeing that it's not a one-off thing. We, like in, for example, in uh, May 2010, before they even called something the flash crash, I actually sent out information to a group of investors indicating that they should, that there's going to be this massive meltdown within the next two weeks. And then as we got within three days of it, I narrowed it down to a 30-minute window on the exact day. And it came within like a point of the low, which is, yeah, so it's like, I don't want to be, I'm not saying that I could always make a prediction to within point of a low, but the point is even making an assessment of a market that is parabolic and and by all measures seems, you know, healthy. And, and then all of a sudden there's this regime shift where there's a big shift in sentiment and, and market mood. It gets me quite interested. And it really gets me interested because it, this is not just applicable to the financial market. This is really applicable to any data set that ha- has a lot of noise embedded in it and is extremely unpredictable in its outward appearance, meaning the outputs that actually show up, but there are underlying inputs. So if you were to take those underlying inputs and those underlying inputs isn't it just about the market or just about identifying uh, t- uh, you know tornado events based on radar imagery yeah. but it could also apply to medicine you know so actually you know looking at the visualization of different kind of MRI imagery or heart rhythm patterns and uh-huh. being able to identify some kind of anomaly that could actually disrupt those uh, kind of systems so it is one area that I, I will be focusing on in coming time. But right now, uh, I think for the next couple of years, uh, the focus is going to be heavily on the financial aid. Yeah, I can imagine. And that's actually where the money is as well. But you could solve a couple of pretty large global problems around health and, and that kind of stuff as well, likely. And not to speak about global warming and the effects of that. <laughs> I do believe that there's uh, global warming. I just don't think it's caused by necessarily only humans. <laughs> but that's a different topic. <laughs> yeah, that's why well, you, could, you could have a Yeah, there's, all, there's so much research out there where it says, like, okay, you know, most of it's caused by the uh, carbon dioxide generated from, like, the, you know, 
Yeah. No, but I mean, at, at the end, to predict what's going to happen with regards to uh, exactly that's so all that matters. Yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. that's true. And yeah. being being right on when it's going to happen, so that at, at the end you can take precautions, precautive actions. Exactly. Exactly. Interesting. So, with regards to how long have you been in business with Running Alpha? Running Alpha, I've been in business since 2012. Okay. Yeah. But I was running a few other businesses. It's the same type of thing except they're still running. It's just that I'm using the Running Alpha brand okay. right now. But yeah, yeah. So with regards to the whole product strategy and the, and the product innovation side of things, what always interests me is like, what's, I mean, you, you had a vision and the vision, you, you created a product around that in order to, well, to bring that vision alive. What do you believe is the one or two or three things that are remarkable about the product or that made the product remarkable, let's put it that way. The fact that it actually produces predictions that are correct in times where they it goes against, you know, the broader sentiment. Yeah. And was and there also, anything in the product or any decision you made that caused that to happen or, you know, that, that has led to that, cor well, that correctness? A lot of iteration and really understanding, digging deep and really understanding yeah what the underlying assumptions are because a lot of the times like we just strictly look at data yeah. but data is not a lie it's not really a, a living organism and the thing is how could you make data come alive and one of the insights i had was that a lot of the algorithms didn't bring the observer into the actual um, equation so yeah. you would basically have an observer viewing something and then whatever they viewed would be the inputs into the model. But they never actually put their own perception plus the data into the model. And that changes the data. So that what it essentially yeah. means is that old data that may be 100 years old is actually new data. It's living data because now there's a different group of decision makers that uh -huh. are alive today and will be you know, interacting tomorrow that are going to be looking at that data to make assessments of what's happening now. And that observer interaction combined with the data itself is what produces the phenomenal result. And I'm so, not aware of other engines out there that actually bring the observer in on so many axes of uh, sentiment change that we look at. And with the observer, you mean the expert, correct? I mean, uh, I, I mean the, the algorithm that a human or a machine may have actually programmed into the intelligence uh, yeah. of making sense of a data set or the human itself. So it would include all observers, human and machine, yeah. interacting with old and new data. And the really, really interesting thing is I always hear people say on TV and everywhere, they said, that's impossible. Whenever I hear somebody say, that's impossible, it's never happened before, those are the only, <laughs> this is the funny thing is, the only situations I will actually identify as opportunities are the ones where people say that can't happen because they're saying that based on the old model of looking at things that doesn't bring the observer in. When yes. you bring the observer in, here's what it really means. As the data set grows over time, there are more ways that you could splice that data set up, which means there are more ways humans and machines could actually say, hey, I think the trend is up or I think the trend is down. None of those independent ways of seeing the market are right or wrong, but they're just inputs 
that go into this mathematical equation that say at the end, the sum nonlinear value of those interactions are going to yeah. produce a result that you're later going to observe in price yeah. that will obviously not follow historical precedent because uh -huh. historical precedent always makes the assumption that the observers that created the information set are the same observers that are viewing it. Yeah. But in the financial marketplace, the observers that are viewing the information set are usually different ones than what created it. And that changes the whole game. Yeah. So, I mean, what, what interests me, I mean, my podcast is all about, you know, how the value we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way or when technology augments the unique strength of people. If you look at your products, what do you believe is, is the case? Is the result always going to be better if the machine is running in combo with an expert or is it, is it possible to run autonomously as well? It can definitely run autonomously. That's how it was originally built. But I always had in mind that it could actually produce even better results when I'd run as a combo with an expert. That expert doesn't necessarily have to be a human also. That expert could be another set of eyes. Like in the age today where we have the internet of connected things, you have a lot of satellites taking pictures of dark regions of the world, yeah. which are like alternative data sets used in the financial space. And it may identify change taking place in the middle of the ocean. Maybe some ship liner exploded, and then it's going to be like in the financial news the next day, and then people are going to react to it, and the stock will crash in the oil sector. But if you actually got that piece of information from whether the eyes in the sky are coming from people or whether it's the eyes on the ground coming from humans, regardless of where that information comes from, if the more expert information you have about an upcoming likely positive or negative event that is not yet factored into the marketplace, yeah. you would think just knowing that event is going to give you a massive edge. But that's not always the case. We all know that sometimes you have this great event or a really bad event, and those events fall on deaf ears in the marketplace because the marketplace does not acknowledge it, because there doesn't seem to be an alignment between the sentiment, perception of the decision makers and the observers looking at that information. Maybe they're still putting weight on prior events built over time, and it's so positive that this negative event happens, and it doesn't produce the effect that it would have historically produced. So by taking the information and insights from this framework and saying, hey, specifically, we are entering this window, this tail risk window, where any piece of negative information will get magnified exponentially, then it becomes extremely valuable to have those eyes on the ground, yeah. humans, eyes in the sky, autonomous computers, and then bringing that together so that we could actually say from a sentiment point of view, all of this external information will get amplified in the marketplace so that we could put on, either put on a trade or management who's not in the business of putting on a trade but are working for the shareholders could make an adjustment based on consumer or investor sentiment. So that's like one big area that it would definitely apply to. The other thing I'd like to add is that, and this is, it's not really digressing, but I just want to just make a comment about George Soros, because it's, it's a very important aspect. It has a lot to do with where my model and framework has gone. One of the big things George Soros has been involved in 
is uh, basically the acknowledgement of the relationship between the economy, the stock market, and the decision maker. And what he acknowledged in that relationship is that there is a constant reflexivity and feedback effect taking place so that there's not really a cause and an effect, but it's this intertwined web. And the thing is identifying, you know, that feedback on many axes of sentiment change is one thing, but being able to actually extend that feedback to the advantage of a corporate decision maker or an investor is quite another. Because there's so many potential things in this world that could happen, but they never happen. Why? Because a lot of times we apply resources. It could be financial capital, it could be human capital, it could be new products that we're trying to take to market. But because the consumer mood and the investment sentiment mood of the marketplace is not aligned with that vision, a lot of that potential for positive change gets wasted. So how could we actually take this methodology and actually bring it into the 21st century of activism and say that, hey, you know what? We're entering this very special time in history where anything that you do is, that's positive will actually accentuate the change that you're looking for. So one big area I could see uh, where a lot of uh, companies lost a lot of money is when it's time to buy back their stock. You'll have a lot of companies you know, buying back billions of shares of their stock right near the market highs. Sometimes it's smart if the sentiment says that it's going to continue for a persistent period, but more than not, a lot of times when you're at an excessive area of optimism, you get a situation where it's just about to turn the other way. And if you could apply this methodology, which we do, to identify those very narrow windows where capital could either be curtailed and basically a decision could be made, hey, you know what, I'm not going to waste the, the company's assets to buy back stock today, why don't we just wait in three weeks or in two months when this methodology says we're entering that window where the marketplace will be attuned to it and it'll produce the desired result for all the stakeholders involved from the shareholders and corporate executives that have a stake in the company. And yeah, so I think that's huge because yeah. it doesn't just affect the investor, it affects all stakeholders at once. I would say so, definitely. Pretty impressive product you have. I mean, from a product strategy perspective, looking at the, at the years that you've been developing this, what has been the toughest decision you had to make in order to, well, that led to, to where you are right now? Well, I would have to say that there were certain assumptions, like probably I'd say back in, in 2008, that I would always test the assumption. I would always assume that I'm wrong. That's the number one thing. Because uh -huh. whenever I, I, I did that, I was able to actually get to the next level. I'll give you an example. In, in 2008, when the market was crashing, this yeah. methodology actually predicted the crash. When the market started coming down and making that low in towards the March of 2009, the world was like pretty much, you know, the US and everything is pretty much bankrupt. If it wasn't for the Federal Reserve to come in yeah. and, and buy all the assets up, the market would have continued on to zero. Yeah. So the point is, no matter how good a framework or methodology is, whether or not you include the observer in the equation, you always have to assume that some outsider, including the which would be the government, 
that actually controls or pulls the strings of how the game of finance is played. Yep. You've got to factor that into the equation. That's one thing in 2008, when even though I predicted the crash, when the market was coming down, I was not integrating the view that they could change the whole game. And so right now, what I've, what I've done is I made sure that I'm not just looking at the observers and based on sentiment that come into the marketplace, but I'm also looking at the different ways that the game could be changed based on the outcome of the prediction. Because if you have such a dire prediction, where yeah. things are going to get so bad, you have to factor in what's the government going to do at that point to possibly change the game. And if they do, what assets could you get involved in that could hedge against whatever bet you're making? Yeah, yeah. And I've found that over time, applying that approach really adds tremendous value. And we're applying that approach today as well. I just want to just add one thing to an earlier question that you that you asked me. What would I say, uh, you know, and I think that question was related to what I was really proud of in terms of this framework of what we've actually accomplished at Running Alpha. Yeah. I've kind of touched on it, but I just want to just sum it up in a single word or a few words here. And, and the single word would be gamma. That doesn't mean anything unless I quickly explain. <laughs> in, in, in the financial marketplace, there's only been two things that really ever existed, two curves. You have the alpha curve, how much could you beat the market and by what percent? And then yep. you got the beta curve, how is this asset moving relative to the benchmark? But yep. there's actually a third curve nobody has talked about. Not because they didn't know about it, it's because it wasn't possible to even talk about. And that kind of touches on what I talked about today, which was the idea of being able to artificially extend the duration of a sentiment feedback window so that it could support a deliberate decision to produce a performance outcome that works for the investor. Yeah. And for example, every day there are moves that happen in the market, huge moves, these, these sudden jumps, positive and negative. Now, those moves happen in different equities every day. They don't happen in the same equity, but they could be happening more often to the advantage of a shareholder if you actually knew those specific windows where you could actually allocate capital and produce a desired outcome, because it doesn't require much capital to change the outcome for maybe 30 or 50 days. Maybe even like a million dollars could change 30 days of the future. Whereas if you're not in one of those windows, you may need tens of billions of dollars to pour into the market to produce a desired outcome. And then at the end of it, if it's counter to what the market wants, it's just going to revert back. So we call that idea of activist investing, where you could actually change the feedback window of the marketplace and the sentiment mood by just your own actions. And we yeah. call that the gamma curve. And by having that gamma curve, it really comes back home to the first thing that I mentioned, which is that we try to support value managers to make them improve their decision making. And as I said, one of the biggest assumptions value managers have is trying to predict what the market multiple is going to be and how far out they should be, dis you know, should be yeah. discounting yeah. information. Because the market discounts information at every moment in time, but it changes, it's dynamic. So today it may be discounting information out 20 days, tomorrow it could be two years, and all that is comes back as a function of sentiment. 
So sure. by knowing these specific windows, we could actually help the value manager objectively avoid value traps without yeah. making false assumptions about these pieces of information. And that would solve a huge pain point uh, in the value investment space and shrink the gap between yeah. individual investor performance. And that's only possible with, with technology, with advanced technology underneath. Exactly. Yes. Wow. So yeah, from all the things that you've learned, what would you advise? Yeah, I mean, how would you say that? Normally I say, well, what would you advise CEOs to do different, but investors to do different? I mean, from what I hear, I mean, I would say everyone in the, in the investor industry should know about your solution. They should know about my solution. But they don't. And, and they should only be using my solutions to advance what they already know. So if they know, like I don't know certain things they know. They may know something. They had a conversation with sure. some board member or they know something about a very specific technology that's coming out to the market. I try to make myself aware of all the things coming out, but no one person can know everything. So exactly. somebody high up in a CEO position or somebody who's in the tech space may be aware of a technology or something happening on the ground that could have an adverse or positive outcome on a company. But the thing is, there's lots of industry uh, trends that could also have an adverse and positive outcome on other companies in the same space. So yeah. how do they know which company to invest in? How do you best True. express that view in the marketplace? Uh, because the thing is, if you're in the wrong sentiment window and you're investing in the same industry, you could get two divergent results. Yeah. So if they come to running alpha and they say, hey, you know what? I know this piece of information. Well, then you tell me the, the, the stock or the portfolio that will amplify my intelligence of that information. And that, I think, is the number one thing that's different about running alpha. All yeah. the other competitors out there are just providing products that tell investors, if you invest in this stock and this stock, your volatility will be lower and you're going to make X return based on historical information. What we're saying is based on live information, information on the ground today based on what you know and what people know around you, how could you take that intelligence yeah. and amplify it? And, and for example, you even had a guest on, the Rosenberg guy on, on before, talking about amplifying uh, you know, human and machine intelligence by bringing together a brain of brains. So yeah. even somebody with that level of intelligence, imagine you had a brain of brains that's yeah. trying to take information from a group of experts that have knowledge about an event that's about to happen in the financial markets that would ordinarily produce a very positive impact to a sector or a specific industry in the marketplace. Exactly. Even knowing that information isn't going to produce the desired result if you don't know which equity is best to express that view. So uh -huh. taking that brain of brain and amplifying the brain of brain using running out. So yeah. it's kind of a second order amplification. Nice. So what is next for you? What is your biggest aspiration with this? Well, next would be to launch an ETF that would actually produce a portfolio that investors could actually buy into in the marketplace without having to think about what to do. And this way, not only would uh, they be able to produce uh, you know, positive results, but they'd also be able to verify if the actual framework is producing the alpha for the right reasons. And that would be a very different type of ETF than we have today, because all the ETFs today, you can only evaluate the result 
after the fact. Like, sure. Right? Like you make an investment and you're proven wrong if the market goes down against you. Yeah. I'd like to be proven wrong when the market's going in my direction as well. So I, let's say we're up 10%, but the underlying physics of what this methodology is saying, like it's supposed to be amplifying information. And if something was to happen where it's not amplifying it, or attenuating it in the in the way it's supposed to, it could mean that there's a, there's a temporary change in the rules of the game during uh, one of these uh, disruptive episodes. And if that's the case, I don't want to be involved in that marketplace. So I may exit a market when it's up rather than waiting for it to go down. Exactly. Yeah. That's extremely valuable. And for myself personally, I would love to have a picture in my house, a live picture where I look at it and the color of the painting and what's drawn on the painting actually tells me what's going on in the world by just looking at it for one second. And the picture changes on a daily basis based <laughs> on the color and the mood of the market. I think this, you're creating such a product, right? This is something I've really thought about in terms of AI. It's yeah. something I haven't put together yet, but if I get to that point, maybe I'll market it. <laughs> yeah. That's an interesting one. So, I mean, if there's anyone in the audience listening to this that you could ask some, something, what, what would you ask? How can they help you? I would say it would be very useful if there's people in the audience that find this type of intelligence useful, then I would also find it very useful if they have intelligence, on-the-ground intelligence, non-insider information, of something that's likely to happen in the marketplace. Because one thing I do see doing in the future is bringing together kind of like a crowd of ideas where people will actually indicate events that are likely to happen and then in real time show how that information could get amplified. But in general, I'd like to really help anyone in the audience. I mean, right now we have a product out where they could go to runningalpha.com and and they could subscribe to Capital Market Trends, and it pretty much gives them a portfolio that is uh, specifically selected based on this market gamma and activism. But beyond that, you know, I would definitely be interested in anyone in the audience that has expertise in automation and, and programming, because I'm always looking for people that may be interested in collaborating with me to produce additional uh, platform products. That could be cool. useful. Well, there's definitely an audience out there because, I mean, at the end, there's a lot of pioneer entrepreneurs that have already been on the podcast. And possibly there's a, there's a link between you and Louise Rosenberg, for example, just, just to name one. So where can people go to find out? Well, you, you already mentioned your website, but where can people go and find out more about you, say hi to you? The best way to get a hold of me would be through LinkedIn. Yeah. So they just type in Ephraim Hoffman on LinkedIn. They could also just on Google, like just type my name. I've got numerous articles that have been written. Oh, uh, there's one that was on NASDAQ regarding my technology, how I started. And then, you know, sometimes I show up at events. For example, last year I was invited to speak at the University of Toronto at the RISC Labs, basically to talk about fintech and how this technology could be applied to the new revolution of fintech. So I'm always trying to put myself out there. If there are people that are interested in having me you know, come down to their corporate office and give them a, uh, a presentation that's fine-tuned to what they're trying to do. I'm also available 
on that basis and they could contact me either on LinkedIn or through my email on Running Alpha, which is Ephraim Hoffman at runningalpha.com. Okay, pretty clear. Well, thank you very much, Ephraim, for this inspiring insight into your world and then the insight into how the whole investment market is, is transforming based on these type of technologies. I wasn't aware of that and this, I'm, I'm pretty impressed with it. So thanks for that. Thank you very much, Tom. And for everybody listening today, thank you for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Ephraim Hoffman, CEO of Running Alpha. The goal of this podcast is to share compelling ideas and showcases to inspire what can be when technology and people blend in the right way. It's my strong belief that too much focus is put on automating people out of a process, in other words, cutting costs, rather than scenarios where the unique strength of people are augmented with technology to change the established rules and to deliver a value that was unimaginable before. So, with this podcast, I want to make a contribution to change this, to create a broader awareness of what can be, to accelerate the adoption by bringing together you, a tribe of like-minded people and organizations, and lastly, to accelerate the initiatives and solutions that could be created because one idea inspires the other. So if you know about stories that are worth sharing, please send me a message. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas, and that starts with you. If you want to have more information, read my blogs, or obtain information on working with me, just visit me on my website, valueinspiration.com. Thank you for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast or provide me with your feedback. I'll see you shortly in a new episode. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.